Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways, and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. And welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. The conference attendees say is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live Tuesdays through Thursday. You get the same amount of mouthwash. We're just spreading it over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of the times and changing world of work. And that's our theme this season for Mouthwash, the real future of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not, what we're checking our assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on on the surface, where it's all going, and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season, from multiple best-selling authors like Gretchen Rubin, to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists, to TikTok superstars. You can check out the full lineup, previous episodes of Mouthwash, everything you need to know is over at mouthwashshow.com. That's mouthwashshow, or one word, dot com. Uh, I'm really proud to say uh, we're sponsored again this season, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Uh, whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways. And to make your place of work a great one, just visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very cool indeed. Um, Ecology are also back to plant a tree for every live listener in the TBD forest. We're over 15,000 trees at the moment. So if you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and start printing your forest today, planting it even. Uh, and if you want that website, it's ecology.com, E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. So not the regular spelling. Um, now is a really good time for the people who are live listening to share the space. Click the round blue plus button in the bottom right hand side of your screen and tell the world you found something good. Everyone you get into the space means another tree in the world. And I think you'll agree that's no bad thing right now. Um, also, for the live listeners, if you want to ask a question, just DM me or use the mouthwash show hashtag and I will pick it up from there throughout the show. OK, on to the guest. Joining me tonight from Washington, D.C. in the U.S. for this episode is none other than Dan Pink, multiple New York Times bestselling author. He sold millions of copies of Drive to sell his human, uh, when and a whole new mind. Uh, Dan has won multiple awards for his work, uh, was previously executive producer of uh, Cloud Crowd Control, uh, which was a television series all about human behavior. And it was on National Geographic Channel. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It aired in 
over 100 countries. It was very, very good. Um, he's also got a masterclass in persuasion, and he appears frequently on every three-letter news channel around the world that you can name. Um, before all this, Dan had a career in politics, and the biggest uh, one I think most people mention is usually that he worked for uh, Vice President Al Gore. Um, after reading uh, To Sell as Human, I actually reached out to Dan and asked him to give me a, a blurb for my book, Disruptive Technologies, and he very graciously did. Um, both books changed the trajectory of my life and have opened doors I didn't think uh, were there when my life was sort of going through. So I thought it only right to have him on the show for Mouthwash and the future of work season with his new book, uh, all about regrets. Uh, yeah, the, the power of regret, it's called. Um, I read it. It's a hefty book, as always. Uh, I do like a hardback book, not going to lie. Um, Dan, welcome to Mouthwash. What did I miss out of the intro? <laughs> oh, well, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. I don't know. When you say the book is 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 hefty, do you mean in in its message or in its um, the number and its mass? Uh, I think in the message, actually, because okay. it completely changed how I thought about regret. It is oh, also, okay. you know, it would do damage if there was some weight behind it, you know, and that sort of <laughs> thing. But um, yeah, no, it's a hardback, the hardback version I have as well. So yeah. How many pages is it? What is it? 200 and... It's like, uh, I don't even know, yeah. two, like 240. It's not a very two... long book. No, it's 214, 214. So yeah, very, very good indeed. Um, okay. What was the first thing you thought of uh, when you woke up today? Um, what time I'd be able to exercise. Oh, is that a is that a big thing for you at the moment? Exercise? Uh, yeah, it's a it's 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 the one thing standing. It's one of the few things standing between me and insanity. Oh, um, so um, yeah, no, because I, I um I um I didn't I mean, probably too much information for your the millions of people listening to this. But uh, yesterday I did not exercise because I was kind of felt a little bit worn out, and so. I don't like to go two days in a row without exercising. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But what's that? You can only do it. You can not do something once, but you mustn't do it twice. Is that right? I think something like the, that. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. yeah. Um, okay. This season's all about the future of work. Um, what's your current situation when it comes to work? Um, are you back at the office? Always been remote? I don't know your situation at the moment. Uh, I actually have been working at home for 20 years. Um, so the, so the, the change in work patterns was not vast for me. Um, so, you know, and I, I've been lucky during the two years of the pandemic that no one close to me has been, has, has passed away, that no one close to me has been super, 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 you know, deathly ill. Um, so, um, so the disruption to me and my work was not as massive as it is for some people. My commute is 22 steps out my back door <laughs> to, love to a garage behind my house here in Washington, D.C., <laughs> I love that. Um, very different. I'm I'm uh, co-working at the moment. So I do two days mm. a week co-working, then three from here and that sort of thing. So, yeah, just a weird uh, glut of work at the moment and that sort of stuff. But um, yeah. let's talk about the last three years. You mentioned it there slightly. Personally or professionally speaking, what's what's been your biggest learning over the last two or three years? Um, probably that life is short and that you know, we, we think that there are going to be infinite tomorrows and they're not going to be that. The t t number of tomorrows that we have is finite. Yeah. I and, think that should, and, and that should shape what we do and say and how we behave today. Definitely. Um, okay. Let's talk about the book. Uh, why did you choose to reframe the way that we see regret for this book? Uh, because we got it wrong. 
we have we, uh, we've gotten it wrong as as in terms of a effective blueprint for life. We think that not having regrets and being positive all the time is the best way to live. It's not. It's actually a wrongheaded way to live. And second is is that um, we we think that that regret is this weird aberration that should be avoided at all times. When in fact it's one of the most common emotions that we have, and that if we treat it right, and that's sometimes a big if, if we treat it right, uh, we can enlist it for a whole array of benefits from becoming better negotiators to solving problems faster to becoming better strategists uh, to improving our parenting skills to avoiding cognitive biases etc 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 you um start the book out by talking about having a no regrets lifestyle and i love the um, tattoo story and that sort of thing uh, as being a bad thing right so having no yeah. regrets is a bad thing we, we're presented with the opposite though everywhere from yeah. uh, the media instagram uh, you know anecdotal friend evidence i always say why is the myth so <laughs> compelling why does it stick around um because it, it has a germ of of truth to it in the sense that you know, we, I, I think that's part of it in the sense that, you know, it's, it's important, you know, when we think about our, when we think about emotions, it's important to have positive emotions. Positive emotions are really important. We want to have a lot of positive emotions. We should have more positive emotions than, than negative emotions. But the fact that positive emotions are good doesn't mean that our emotional portfolio should consist of only positive emotions. Uh, we want some negative emotions too, because they're, because they're useful. So I think that's, so, so in some ways we've been sold a bill of goods that the, the most effective way to live is to be relentlessly positive when in fact it's actually the best way to live is to is to be mostly positive but to but to actually grapple with our negative emotions because we can enlist them to work smarter and live better i think that the challenge is that no one ever teaches us how to deal well with negative emotions so what happens is that people either ignore them so they go out and get a no regrets tattoo which is a form of delusion or we end up getting captured by our regrets. We wallow in them, and that's even worse. Yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit later. Um, let's uh, tell me a bit more about the World Regrets Survey slash project. You surveyed about four and a half thousand people in the US, created a website that's charted regrets of people in over a hundred countries. What surprised you the most from that sort of project, but also the data? Well, I did two things. One was that exactly as you say, the American Regret Project, which was a very large public opinion survey of the U.S. population, the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes on regret ever conducted. Um, and that we surveyed about uh, we surveyed over f nearly forty five hundred people um, about that. Um, a very, very good, solid survey. Um, the second thing that I did was I collected regrets from all over the world in what I called the World Regret Survey, which was this giant tool where we collected over uh we have now we now have over twenty thousand regrets from people in 109 countries and so using both that quantitative analysis and the qualitative analysis i think that the biggest surprise to me was how universal these regrets were um that the, i did the quantitative piece of research in order to suss out demographic differences there weren't many and when I look at the world regret survey, you know, sort of looking for um, even modest differences in regrets by nationality, there weren't that many. That that are that our that regret tends to be fairly universal in, in terms of how people experience regret and what they regret. It tends to be pretty universal. Um, the book. Uh, I, I want to talk about some differences a little bit later when we talk about um, regret in the workplace. But the book discusses um, four core regrets that people right. have: foundation, boldness moral and connection regrets. Um, 
people should obviously buy the book to explore them all. But when it comes <laughs> to the world of work and the future of work, foundation and boldness seem to be the ones to sort of focus on. Um, so can you tell us just very quickly overview so that people obviously buy the book? Um, what are the foundation and boldness regrets and why are they so powerful? Foundation regrets are if only had done the work. That's how that's what foundation regrets sound like. So these are regrets that people have about small decisions early that lead to bad consequences later. I saved too I I, I spent too much and saved too little. I uh, didn't work hard enough in school or university. I didn't take care of my health. Uh, so, so small decisions that end up eroding the stability of your life later on. Uh, another category is exactly as you say are are boldness regrets. Again, they 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 span domains. So these are regrets about. You know, I didn't ask somebody out on a date. I didn't speak up. I didn't um, assert myself. I didn't start a business. Uh, I didn't travel when I had a chance. So foundation regrets, I'm sorry, boldness regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. And the other two, I think, are actually, I'll just mention them very briefly. I think they actually have some relevance to the workplace. Moral regrets, a third category, are if only I'd done the right thing. And connection regrets are if only I'd reached out. So talking about those, are there um, special or specific ways that we can sort of counter those types of regrets versus, say, moral or connection ones? Um, yes. Um, in, in some ways, the, the, the way to handle the regrets depends less on which category it fits in than on whether it's um, an action regret or an inaction regret, whether it's a regret about something we did or about something we didn't do. And so uh, with certain kinds of action regrets, we have we, we have a choice. So let's say that I have a regret where I have, um, I've hurt somebody. Um, I can go make amends. I can make restitution. Um, another thing that we can do to take the sting out of certain kinds of action regrets is we can do what's called what's what logicians call a downward counterfactual, what I like to call an at least we can imagine how things could have turned out better, worse. I'm sorry, how things could have turned out worse. And so, so I have a lot of people in the database who say things like, I, mostly women, I say things like, I, I shouldn't have married that guy, but at least I have these two great kids. So that's something we can do for action regrets. For inaction regrets, which linger with us far longer, uh, as we age, inaction regrets outnumber action regrets by about two to one. I mean, that's what really sticks with us over time. For that, um, there's, a, there's a bigger process that, to go through, which I'm happy to explain. Sure, go for it. Okay, sure. So what we want to do with with all regrets, but particularly this larger category of inaction regrets, is is three things. Um, think of it as inward, outward, forward. Inward, outward, forward. First, we want to reframe how we think about the regret and ourselves, uh, and that that calls for self compassion. So when we have a regret, we say, "Oh, uh, if only I had, um, uh, if only I had started a business." Um, uh, you have to treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. A lot of times when we make mistakes, the way we talk to ourselves is vicious. Don't do that. Second the thing that we can do um, in reframing it is to recognize that our missteps are part of the human condition. And the third thing that we can do is recognize that any mistake we make is a moment, a small patch of our life, not the full measure of our life. So the first step is inward. So treat yourself with self-compassion. The second thing to do is outward. Uh, you want to disclose it or at the very least talk about it or write about it. Uh, when we disclose regrets, we unburden ourselves. This is one reason why I had I have 20,000 people who want to share their regret with a complete stranger. Uh, so we, we unburden ourselves. And the other thing is that we make sense of it. When we convert the our regrets from the abstraction of the emotion to the concreteness of words, we can begin to make sense of them. And finally, okay, so we've gone inward. We've treated ourselves with kindness rather than contempt. 
outward. We've written about it or talked about it to disclose and make sense of it. Three, we want to extract a lesson from it. That's essential. And the way we extract lessons in our own lives is taking a step back. We're pretty bad at solving our own problems. We're better at solving other people's problems. So at some level, take a step back and almost imagine yourself as another person. So there's goofy stuff like talking to yourself in the third person. There are techniques like what would I tell my best friend to do, which I think is really important. In the world of work, one of my favorite decision-making techniques comes from Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel, who when he was stuck on a decision, he would ask himself, what would my successor do? And then he would do that. Oh, that's a great question. I love that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, or I found it interesting, that um, as we age, uh, we regret less about the decisions we made to do with careers and finance. Um, do you think that's going to stay the same post-pandemic, or do you think we've seen a seismic shift? Um, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think that in general, um, um, we, 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 we regret, as I said before, inactions more than actions of the domain matters, but not nearly as much. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't buy the idea that this great resign, like I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. There's some people arguing that the great resignation is going to be a disaster for people, that they're all going to regret their choices of moving, changing jobs. And there are other people who say, oh, this is the beginning of a, you know, a brand new utopian era of the workplace. I don't believe either one of those. Um, oh, I want I to think, talk about that a little bit more later. So yeah, hold, yeah. hold fire on that because that's a different, definite section. I think you've got, a, well, I know now you've got a definite opinion on that. Yeah, sure. yeah. So I, I, so I, so I think it's going to be somewhere, I think it's going to be somewhere, um, I think it's going to be somewhere in between there. I, I, I do think that when it comes to um, um, careers, there are a lot of regrets about boldness and a lot of regrets about, I, I wish I had, if only I had spoken up. If only I'd been more entrepreneurial in my job. If only I'd started a business of my own. And I think that the lesson of those regrets, no matter where we are, is that we should all have, especially in our careers, a slight bias for action, a slight bias for, for trying stuff. And and on that, I, I, don't, I put a lot of the onus on the individual, but not all of it. Because in order to try stuff, in order to speak up, in order to do things in an organization, you have to have some psychological safety. And And leaders who don't provide sufficient psychological safety are doing their people a huge, huge, huge disservice. They are, they are thwarting people's growth. They are fueling their regrets and probably hastening their departure. Yeah. I, I mean, um, all right, let's, let's talk about the great resignation now then. Um, that's the thing we brought it up. We might as well, you know, batter it down. So what, it seems like you're not a fan. Um, and that's the thing you think people are making uh, up. Well, no, no, I'm in between. No, 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 Paul, I'm, I'm totally in between. Um, you know, I, I don't believe that the great resignation is the greatest thing that's ever happened, that, that it's the beginning of a new era in right. labor empowerment. I don't believe that for a second. But I also don't believe it's like, oh, no, everyone's going to regret it. Everyone's going to be it's, it's a big mistake. They don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, I think it's like 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 most things in life that it'll probably be make people a little bit make people's lives a little bit better. Um, I, I think that I think what, what matters more is in than the great resignation itself uh, in terms of the future of work is that the last that I, I think there's actually something bigger going on. I, I, I think that the last few few that we're, we're servicing some some unanswered questions about work and organizations uh, questions like, you know, uh, what kind of work should be done? together and what kind of work should be done solo? We don't have a good answer to that. We're, I think we're going to try to figure that out. I think that's a far more important question. Um, uh, I think there's a hugely important question 
um, like, what is an office for today? You and I were talking about where we worked. Mm. Like, what's, what's an office for? Um, I'm not sure. And I, I think the question as well is what what an office what can an office be as well? Great right point. Now, that's seems, an even better. That's a that's a that's a more expansive way of looking at it. I agree with you. What I can th- an th- office be? I'm really interested. We're speaking to um, an expert on co-working to, uh, tomorrow, Hector Cabaz, and um, I'm really interested in what, where that's going and what the data says because I think it's kind of the halfway house for a lot of people. There are swathes of businesses with ten year leases and just no financial incentive to really. Uh, revamp um, offices and that and so they're forcing people back into sort of the old molds which I, is not going to end well for anyone really let's be honest yeah. probably helping the great resignation I and, do and think I'm, and, and I'm in the middle I'm in the middle on that too on, on, on in terms of remote work like I don't think we're going to get to a world where everybody's remote um, but I also don't think we're going to get to a world that looks like 2018 where you had you know I would go into companies and and you have a bunch of people sitting in a row everybody wearing headphones and everybody doing heads down work at their own computer, not talking to each other. You don't have to go downtown to do that. Um, And I think we're finally, I think we're finally realizing that. So I think that we're going to be at a, you know, I I think that the the end game is going to be permanent hybrid to the point where we don't even call it hybrid anymore. We just call it work. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I, I see the data and I spoke with um, Tessa White yesterday. She is the job uh, TikTok job doctor, um, followed by half a million people, you know, helping people resign, getting wage balance, everything like that. And the Harvard Business um, Review piece that she um, quoted was saying that different demographics are benefiting uh, much more from the great resignation, sort of skewing the data. So the mm. 30 to 40 year olds are basically saying it's now or never. I've got to do something. And the younger people are going, hell no. I'm, this is so uncertain. I don't want any of the benefits you're giving me, but I know I don't want to go back to the office. That switch, that's an in- inflection point, according to um, the Leeson Index, which is one that sort of focuses on all the data from actual workplaces, like what's literally going on. And um, that's that's the one thing that's sort of coming up. It was the young people that wanted to go back to the office, and now they're starting to see that it's the old people who now want to go back to the <laughs> office, to use uh-huh. horrible ageist terms and that sort of thing. Um, but I do, I do take your point. I'm like, I don't think anyone's figured out what the office of the future looks like, or should look like, or can. But I will tell you for nothing. When I walk around London, I do not see anybody building the office of the future. That's for sure. They seem I, to be the same sterile boxes. You know what? You you, you would have the same reaction here in Washington D.C. So in the in the U.K. capital and in the you know the British capital and in the American capital, there. You don't, you don't see a lot. You see, you see, no, I, I think that, that, that co-working spaces give us hints about that, um, yeah. about what that might look like. I think they give us hints. Um, but I, I, I still think that there we'll, we'll look back on them in 10 years as somewhat primitive, primitive, uh, iterations of what an office looks like. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because everyone's got yeah. these four wall things and very few modular walls, as I like to say. It's like it's not like you can pick up that wall and go and put it over there. You've got to call someone. They've got to schedule it in. They've got to check things. So it's kind of like, why, you keep st- why do you keep building these buildings that don't like change around? Your business is changing. Your business will change. Or you start going, right, you've got to find a startup that you're like really impressed by and get them in as your neighbors you know and that sort of thing and that's Mm. how maybe you can build synergies and that sort of stuff but Mm -hmm, i'm mm -hmm. not seeing any of that at the moment everyone's still grabbing their ankles it sounds like interesting Um, let's do a tone change um it is a picture in the book um of a gallup poll in 1953 but it asks a phenomenal question if you could start over would you live your life differently daniel i have to ask you the same question would you live your life differently if you started over 
Yeah, I think so. Not not entirely differently, but I think I'd do some different things. What no would question. change? Give us something salacious. <laughs> um, I think I would. Oh my god, so much stuff. Um, uh, it, it, as as a kid, I would have spent. Uh, I, I would have spent way less time watching television, way more time uh, learning a musical instrument or learning another language that's not English or uh, getting really, 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 really good at one sport. Oh, yeah, sport. I never got into it at school. I wish I had because I think going to the gym now would be easier. 100%. And if somebody out there wants to tell me how to make the gym enjoyable, I'm all ears. I really am. My DMs are open. You know um, what? But, but, but yeah, I'll hmm. tell you who can tell you, you know, who has the answer to that question. Yeah. Is, is uh, Katie Milkman at, uh, at uh, University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, who has done some research on temptation bundling. Oh, what's yeah. that? Oh, it's a, some brilliant line of research where it basically says, let's say that what, what is that, let's say that there's something that you really like to do. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. Do you like to read crappy novels or watch crappy stuff on Netflix or what's something like that? Uh, go for the Netflix one. <laughs> okay. So let's say you like watching crappy stuff at Netflix. What you do is you, you, um, and let's say you, you, you have your, your, your iPad, you give your iPad to the people at the gym. And you're only allowed to watch Netflix when you're at the gym. Oh, I see. So you make your pleasurable bit at that. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I like yeah. That. What was her name again? Sorry. Katie Milkman. Like, like, Katie like, Milkman. yeah. K-A-T-Y. And the last name is Milkman. Like, 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 like what we like used the, to have. Yeah. Like, like, yes, funny. exactly. Yeah. And they were always, they were, and they were always men and, and they yeah. delivered milk. I don't even see milk people anymore. That's that's what we should bring back, milk people. But anyway, yeah. um, right. Sorry, or just milk, the, or just we milk, just yeah, like exactly. milk, milk drones. Do you know what's funny? I used to work um, for the Make Mine Milk campaign, which is the UK version of Got Milk, yeah. right over in the states. Um, and I interviewed a very young man at the time called Justin Bieber. It is on the internet if you want to check it out. It is hilarious. I made him down a pint of milk, and he almost died. But it was it was one of my career highlights to date. <laughs> looking back on it but at the time i was terrified i just killed someone um but hey that's milk for you but uh yeah um right let's uh enough about now think about think about the change in the world it's like so so regret is all about counterfactual thinking Mm -hmm. think about think about the change in the world if you had killed justin bieber back then i would have a lot of angry people on my even then he was who knows but Oh, oh really? Okay. Oh yeah. But who knows? Maybe the world would have turned out totally differently. Maybe there would have been no Brexit. Maybe there would have been no Trump. Maybe there would oh, be God. you know no war what? in Ukraine. You never know. It could I'm be sorry, that guys. it could be that it could be that 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 Justin Bieber is the linchpin uh in, in our civilization and that getting rid of him um could lead to dire or glorious consequences. We just don't know, Paul. We just that don't is know. the superpower I would love to have. I would love yeah. to be able to go back in history and be like, "Oh, that's the thing you've got to, you know, just wiggle that button a bit more, and then it'll right. fix itself and that sort of stuff." Right. Be quite interesting. Right. But that's also, you know, Marvel's gig, isn't it? So they'll do that for us. Um, right. Back to the book. How do we um, use regret to our advantage in the professional world? Uh, well, what we do is, well, I, let me be very tactical here. One of my favorite things to do is, is, is to, um, is a, is a failure resume, which is an idea from Tina Seelig at Stanford. Here's what you do. You, you know, you have, a, everybody has a resume, a list of all of your accomplishments and accolades and achievements and whatnot. Um, a failure resume is the reverse. Um, you sit down, you list all of your screw ups, your mistakes, your setbacks, your blunders, 
Uh, you do that in one column. In the second column, you list what lesson you learned from each of those. And in the third column, you list what you're going to do about it. So again, this is this is how we deal with regret. We don't ignore it. We don't wallow in it. We confront it, acknowledge it, think about it, draw a lesson from it. I think you've mentioned that in the FT piece that I read that you said it can be a source of inspiration. Um, when I've been talking to behavioral economists and CEOs and other authors about the world of work, one thing still strikes me as glaringly obvious that people aren't saying enough in the workplace when they see opportunities or potential issues. And it's usually because they don't want to offend or they don't want to take chances. Um, do you think uh, regret can be used as a catalyst for business innovation? And if so, can this something like a failure resume be transformed into uh, the workplace? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, a way to put that in practice would be for individual leaders to, you know, this week, talk to their team, tell them about one regret that you have, tell them what you learned from it, tell them what you're going to do about it. Uh, what that does is that creates an atmosphere of psychological safety. And we know from the work of Amy Edmondson and others that psychological safety is a, is often a precondition for any kind of innovation, any kind of free thinking. If people don't feel safe, if they, if they feel like they're going to get clobbered for speaking up, if they feel like they're going to get clobbered for taking a risk, you're not going to get anything new or interesting. So, um, and 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 if a leader acknowledges one of her regrets, talks, but but that doesn't just leave it there. Says, "Here's what I learned, and here's what I'm going to do." Uh, then that I think that itself creates conditions of psychological safety. It normalizes regret. It teaches people how to make sense of their regrets and draw lessons from it. And I think that that can be a pathway to uh, innovation and higher performance. Mm. Um, it was uh, from the Japanese gent who gave you uh, a quote for, on the um, on the survey. I think he's 33 or something like that. And he said uh, he regrets not doing things because of what other people might think. Oh, um, yeah. Do you think that's what's holding humanity and maybe businesses as well back? Huh. People who may have had great ideas just aren't pushing things forward because they're afraid of what others will say and challenge them on. And and if that is the case, how do we remedy that? You, you talk about psychological safety, but there are, I, I don't know, I don't think I've ever worked for a business where I felt psychologically safe to say anything. Um, well, is that fair? I mean, I did at MySpace. It was very sort of like open-y sort of, there was a lot of shooting down, but it was interesting. Let's put it like that. But mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people wouldn't, certainly at the moment, feel psychologically safe to say anything. How do individuals cre help create that sort of feeling of psychological safety? Well, I'm not sure it's up to the individual to, to create that. I mean, I think that I, I, um, because I, I think that's something that the leadership and the organization ha has to provide. Now, what I think the real question is, what does an individual do in the absence of that? Mm -hmm. And and on that. You know, I think that the the one of the most important lessons I've learned is not to care what other people think. I mean, truly. And, you know, I, I think that we make we have a we have a huge um, we have a I think we make a huge mistake. It's a, it's almost a form of of pluralistic ignorance where we, you know, I mean, where we where we, we wonder what other people are going to think of us and. Like I, I know what I know what other people think of me. You know what they think of me, Paul? They don't. They're thinking about themselves. No one gives a shit about me. They're not thinking about me. So just do your thing. I think that's it. I think a lot more people think about you than you think, but uh, maybe not the way that you're thinking. But yeah, I, I, I would. I, you got a following, haven't you? Yeah, but still, people are thinking about themselves. That no one is. No one is saying, "Oh, he's 
you know, is, 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 is pink smart? Is pink dumb? Is pink successful? Is he not successful? Is he cool? Is he uncool? No one's thinking that. No one cares. They're trying to figure out their own stuff. I think they're trying to figure out those questions to figure out their own stuff. I think they are asking those questions, but yeah, but interesting. Um, let's just stick on that point for a moment. What um, advice would you have for leaders and managers who have swathes, maybe hundreds of people underneath them who uh, they're managing, but they know that they regret choices they've made in their lives or perhaps are unliving at the moment? If the, if the individuals they're managing have regrets in their lives? Yeah, which everyone will, won't they? And that's yeah, thing. some yeah. more prevalent, some more not. Yeah, but- I would go back to what I was. I would go back to what I was saying before, which is to uh, share one of your own regrets, share what you've learned from it, and then share what you're going to do about it, and then help the other help by by doing that. I think that again, you create these conditions we've been talking about, but you also model how to deal with those regrets. I think that leaders who help people who who can normalize individual regrets who can help people make sense of them. And then this is so important. you got to help people draw lessons from it to apply to the future. I think that becomes part of leadership. I think because part of leadership is, I mean, come on, we have entire departments of people development. How do you develop people? You help them learn and grow. How do people learn and grow? By acknowledging what they did wrong and doing better next time. Mm. Um, you, I think it's towards the end of the book. There are multiple techniques for handling and exploring regret in the book for individuals. Um, one of them was called the regret circle, a bit like the regret resume. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether do you think uh, that would work with colleagues? So yes. explain what it is first. You know, I, I regret circle. I think people may guess what it is, but give me your. Well, fear. let me explain what it is because Paul, I think it, I think it, I think it would work. Uh, a regret circle. Let's say that. So let's say you and I did a regret circle, and we get three other people, and um, and maybe I would start, and I what I would do is I would discuss one regret that I have. I would describe what I learned from it, but then I would go to the other four of you to give me advice on what to do about it. Because again, we're better solving other people's problems than our own problems. And then we would go around and then you would offer your regret. You would say what you learned from it. And then the four of us would offer you advice on what to do next. So it's, again, it's a way to normalize regret and it's a way to come up with a specific process to extract lessons from it that we can apply to our future behavior Mm. um you end the book on anticipating regret and even optimizing it um can you talk about that for a bit and how should businesses or smart businesses um utilize those skills um how do you recommend they do that well i mean it's important to understand at an individual level what people are going to regret and and i think that's true you know as we see if we scale up in the individual to the organization and 10 years from now, a lot of what you're doing today, you're not going to remember and you're not going to care about, truly. Um, but I think we can make a pretty safe prediction about what you and I and everybody listening is going to care about, which is you're going to care about these four things. You're going to care about, did you build a strong foundation for yourself and your family and your team? Uh, did you take a smart chance? Were you bold? Uh, did you do the right thing? And did you connect to others who you, you care about and who care about you? And everything else is meaningless. So, um, and, and so I would focus on doing the very, 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 very best on those four dimensions and actually chilling out about everything else. Uh, I, I really think that that's the, I think that's the way to, I think these, regr- these regrets, as I've said before, they, these regrets, clar- regrets in general, clarify what we value and they instruct us on how to do better in the future. And it's a very, very safe bet 
what you and I and everybody else here is going to care about in 10 years. And it's not going to be whether, you know, the font on that memo was 14 point or 16 point. It's not going to be what, whether you, you know, we painted the break room yellow or orange. Um, it's, those things don't matter. Uh, what is going to matter are these things that w- that we that that twenty thousand people around the world have told me matter, uh, and if we focus on those and trying to minimize those future regrets, then I think we're going to live better, and I think our organizations are going to be far stronger. And I guess just from a simplistic sort of point of view, it's much easier to focus on four things than it is, say, on forty, you know, or worrying every of day. Of course, yeah, of course. I mean, I do think that one of the secrets in life that no one ever teaches us is that is what to ignore. I mean, what, you know, we, be, we become what we pay attention to, uh, but what we pay attention to depends on what we, what we ignore. And I don't think we ignore enough. I think it's having the I don't skills. Think, I don't think we ignore the right things either. I definitely agree with that last one. I think it's having the skills, isn't it, to ignore things. When you have notifications, pings, uh, doorbells that now go to your mobile phone, everything seems (laughs) to be instant, you know, and Uh it's the ability to almost block or not never allow in, you know, you can block something once you've got it, but not before. Um, it's, it's, It's such a skill to sort of have. I'll give you an example. I recently got an Apple Watch for the fitness and all of my notifications went straight back on when I put it on because I had one before I gave it to my dad because uh, I went Android and that sort of thing. But it's just that little thing. And now every five minutes, something goes off that I have to then turn off. Uh, it is a nightmare. But that's the business of big tech is to get you to use things and see the value yeah. and that sort of thing. But it, it's just an example of you. It's a constant battle that you have to sort of fight. And you almost have to be relentless in your obsession with breaking notification. I can't remember what near I told me to call it uh, notification. It's not obsession, but it was a word like that. But um it's it's a skill that we almost have to teach kids at a young age now. Turn off your notifications. Oh, I've gone notification zero. The only people that can get through to me at any time, night or day, are parents and sister. That's it. So yeah. everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Good no, luck, I've, you know. I, I, I turn off my notifications. Yeah, I, 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 so funny. I'm on calls or zooms, and all I can hear is Slack going in the background. Yeah. Heinous, heinous. But um, but yeah. Um, what? Uh, when it comes to the word work, I think um, let's talk about generations for a sec. Um, previous generations or age bands, whatever you want to call them, um, had a job for life, job security that just doesn't exist today. Right. The the workforces of today have a lot more uncertainty, which I think plays on people's minds, certainly their wallets. Um, what advice do you have for people who maybe are thinking of leaving their jobs but haven't quite made the decision yet? Um, start small. I think that's the biggest I think that's the biggest takeaway that um and, and also recognize that you don't have to have it all figured out. Uh, one of the things that we, we see, and this is, I mean, Arminia Her, Her, Ibarra, who, who now teaches at London Business School, has done a lot of work on this. And what, what, she, what she's shown is that we, we have this notion of job change, career change that is erroneous. We think that what you do is you chart it out, you plan, and then you change. And that's not how it works. Typically, what you should do is take a small step in the direction, test it out, and see what it's like. So if you're thinking of starting a business, um, don't quit your job tomorrow and hang up a shingle on Thursday. Um, maybe start a side hustle. You know, take a small step in that direction. We think that planning is plan- that, that, that we have to understand something and plan for it before we can act. But in some ways, acting is a form of planning and understanding. And so th- that's, my, that's my best advice. Start small and 
experiment. Um, I really want to ban the word hustle. I just have a real problem with it. I don't know why, but uh, a side, side, job, gig, a side, side gig, gig, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, I've really got to write something about that. But anyway, um, in the book, uh, there was an interesting statistic that sort of I ringed like uh, double and that sort of thing. Uh, and it was that men regret more than women, roughly double the amount. Why is that? Um, no, I, I mean, uh, there aren't that many different. No, I, that might, that, that, I don't think that's right. Uh, it was from the survey that um, it was 12% for women and 25% for men. Uh, oh, career? Yes, I think it was, sorry, to, to do oh. with careers, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 not in general. Oh, yeah, okay, guys. Yeah, sorry, yeah, not yeah, in general, yeah. sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, uh, that's interesting, yeah. Um, um, I don't know uh, why that is. Uh, I, it could be that um, that men have might feel like they have more career options and therefore more options to for, more foregone options and therefore more regrets. Uh, it could be that career is closer to men's identity than it is to women's. I don't know. Hmm. It's it's interesting as well because politically speaking, I think I've observed more of the opposite um, behavior that I'd expected in the last five years than I can mm. remember in history, with obviously exceptions. Um, to what degree do you think regret varies by sector and industry as much as sex? If that makes sense, Our yeah, I don't people... know. That, that's oh, an interesting. That's a that's a really interesting question. I just don't know the answer to that. I I didn't. I don't. I don't have the. I don't have the numbers on that. I didn't. I didn't ask that question. My hunch, Paul, and it's only a hunch, is that. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be a lot of differences by sector. The, the reason why I thought of that is, I give you an example. I thought financial people would be more astute about risk and therefore regret less because they're more willing to take it. Very interesting. Could be, you could be right. That's. A, I mean, I like I like the argument. Um, I just I just don't know. The thing that I do know is that demographically there aren't massive. That there in general there aren't massive demographic differences in regret. So I I don't know whether your work sector so so my prediction would be that work sector doesn't necessarily matter that much but i could be wrong and then you make a good argument about about finance that mm. it could be even even you know that that the the people with the fewest regrets are actuaries because their whole job is about assessing risk yeah i need to do more research in it but obviously you've got hofstede's uh, cultural dimensions and that sort of thing i'm pretty sure they've been debunked or something but i constantly go back to them and say like do you know what i think i read that that was the same as what it was when it was there and i think it's you know, been debunked several times or been deemed uh, culturally inappropriate and that sort of thing. But there's some interesting things. When you saw the sort of people around the world, have you seen any sort of trends that people could maybe use in the workplace to do with regret that work in different countries? Um, again, I, you know, I collected regrets from 109 countries, but it wasn't a random sample. So I you know, just, I asked, just, I just, people voluntarily contributed. So mm, I just don't generally so, speaking, you know, generally you know, speaking, there were not many national differences among regrets. They were really just, the, they sort of stuck in the four quadrants. Yeah. There, there weren't that many. Um, I, I think that there, um, you know, I think there was a little bit of difference. I saw maybe a little bit of difference in, in moral regrets and that people say in Confucian cultures, East Asian cultures and other kinds of, uh, cultures might have, have had more regrets about, you know, not respecting authority than they might than than people say in the United States or Australia or Canada would have. Mm. No, but, but, but nothing, 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 nothing super dramatic there. Mm. Yeah, I was. I'm interested as well in religion and um, how how much regret people have based on you know religion. I know you didn't ask that question either, but I think that would be well, an interesting dimension to look at. But it's a really interesting question, and I actually did ask it in the American Regret Project, the the giant 
public the giant opinion one. poll. All right. So, the, uh, so it's only the U.S. population should take it for that. I asked a question in there to get at that difference. I asked a question about belief in God. I asked people this question. Uh, which of the following best describes you? I believe in God. I don't believe in God. I'm not sure I believe in God. So I wanted to see whether belief in God affected people's propensity to regret or what they regretted. And I found there was no correlation. Oh, interesting. I would have thought I would. Yeah. yeah. So, so no, so, so no correlation, no correlation about belief in God and regret. None. Um, mm -hmm. No, it's partly because here in the United States, so many people believe in God, in contrast to Europe. Right. Yes, we, we are, I think the phrase is non-believers. <laughs> but a lot of Jedi over here, increasing Jedi is every year, apparently, according to our census, that's for sure. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, the author of Drive, about our motivations at work and... Um, where we are after the last three years. Have you seen any data or research from, you know, during the pandemic that show how our motivations have changed or are changing? I don't know. Um, you know, one of the things that we see, if you think about the dimension of autonomy, I, I think that, that the, we, we've had this incredible experiment with autonomy, you know, around the world where, where you have people mm. working remotely, which a lot of folks said, a lot of leaders said wasn't possible. You couldn't trust people. And then we yeah. had, you know, 24, what are we up to now? Like 26 months of doing this. And you know what? You can trust people, um, or at least, you know, the vast, 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 vast majority of people. So I, I think that the, there, um, that, that becomes a very difficult egg to unscramble, I think. And, mm. and my hunch is that we're, um, we're going to see more autonomous workplaces in general, not everywhere because we've had this two-year experiment with autonomy and it worked really well. Mm. Trust has come up a lot, often organically in these chats. Um, we've only done, what, I think this is episode eight. Um, it's quite interesting. Um, when I was doing the research around the series, the surveillance tech, we've never spent Ugh. more on it. And it's it's crazy. Keyboard trackers, cameras, everything. Third. Everyone's spending more. So that trust thing, I think that I think you are hundred percent right. We are more trusting of people because we've sort of gone through it, ironed it out, and that sort of thing. But more than ever, we are technically distrusting of people. So they want to sort of cover their butts. I think that's I think that's part of it. I I I, I think it's very difficult for some organizations to trust people because um, when you don't, if you, if you start from the premise of not trusting people, if you say people can't be trusted, mm. then you go, you go into very controlling mechanisms like, like surveillance. And I think there's some organizations and some leaders that are much more comfortable with control than with autonomy. And, and the problem is, is that autonomy usually leads to better, usually leads to better results. If you control people, uh, in, in, through surveillance technology or any other mechanism, you're going to get either compliant people defiant people but you're not going to get engaged people people don't engage by being monitored they don't engage by being controlled they don't engage by being watched period mm. like that's not even a close call no the history the history of humanity in some ways is the history of one group of human beings trying to control another group of human beings and that second group of human beings responding with either compliance or defiance I, I think you're seeing that, aren't you? People, that's the great resignation or the great acceleration. I think that's part of it. You want to call it? Yeah, I, I think people I think are just like, I can great, do, I think do part something. of the great resignation is that when 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 labor markets uh, tightened a bit, people looked at their job and said, "I'm being treated like crap at this job, and I'm out of here." Yeah.
I, I think it comes down to that. It's I think for younger people, it's there are lots of jobs in the lower end sector, right? And that's the lower end price bracket and that sort of thing. 30 to 40 year olds, it makes sense. That's why they're sort of moving because it's now or never. 60, 70s, they're staying put. They're like waiting for parachutes to open and everything. So I, I get it. The, the age bands are there. What I'm really interested in is how easy it is to push people over those edges, if that makes sense, whether it's, you know, two weeks of bad behavior by a company is it just they didn't buy me a chair you know and that sort of thing so <laughs> a, a third of people still don't have and this was fresh last week data um uh they still don't have a chair that supports their back at work after oh three God. years that's crazy like number one buy it yourself number two why aren't companies going you need a chair let me buy you a chair yeah. <laughs> chairs are cheap for companies nuts but yeah um but in the future we might not need chairs right because the metaverse is coming and everyone's going to be amazing <laughs> and strapped in and that sort of stuff yeah. i'm asking everyone what is the um what's your take on the metaverse is it uh going to be virtual desks and keyboards or do you think it's still a good time to put stock in zoom i have no idea and what makes you think zoom isn't the metaverse oh what you think zoom's a metaverse I don't know, is it? No, Zoom's a platform or a tool, isn't it? The metaverse or a multiverse, which is the, probably the better term for it, it, is a space where people can go and essentially do whatever they want to do. Lots of um, real world equivalents and that sort of thing. So um, Meta are doing an interesting sort of play. Obviously, they've put their, you know, shot their wad early, as they say, but um, they're sort of taking over the, the narrative a bit. But it's um, interesting the way they did the offices. So it's I think it's called Workplace. Uh, sorry, um, Spaces, Horizon Spaces, I think that's what it's called. But um, so it can recognize my when I've got an Oculus headset on um, or a Meta headset. I think they've changed the name. Oculus is no more. I don't know. Someone update me. Um, when you put that headset on, you can it recognizes an Apple keyboard and it sort of goes see through. So then you can type on that keyboard. Mm. And I get that. It's really interesting. And I could see a lot of those headsets in things like co-working sort of spaces. I'm interested for people of like. As an author say, would it be beneficial for you to strap on a VR headset and dictate while you're walking through a park somewhere virtually that you've never been? I mean, I would give it a whirl. I can't imagine it's going to materially improve my writing. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting for a lot of people. I, it, for me, I as we talked about earlier, like the, the office should be personalized for everyone that's unrealistic in a physical space in a metaverse or a multiverse yeah, space that's a hundred percent you know and that sort yeah. of thing and it's going to look you know like everyone's everyone's poster is on the right hand side that they want you know and that sort of thing so kind of interesting i definitely think it's um one sort of thing about but i i personally think 10 years away when would you be remotely interested in talking about the uh, metaverse oh i'm interested in talking about it now i, mean, I, think, oh. it's, I, I think it's i think it's i think it's you know i i think it's interesting i mean i i you know i have um, again, once again, I'm in the middle. Do I think the metaverse is going to change everything? No. Do I think that the metaverse is going to disappear, that it's all hype? No. Um, you know, I mean, I think if you look at um, the amount of actual real money that people are willing to pay for, say, digital assets, uh, for items inside of games, things that are not real, things that, are, that exist only as pixels or as bits, um, not, as, not as anything that they can physically see or hold or touch, people are willing to do that. People are willing to, you know, um, you know, you have people, you know, at, in workplaces saying, you know, uh, oh, if you buy me a piece of pizza, I'll give you that item in this game, you know. So, so I do. So, so I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a metaverse. I'm not a mega skeptic of the metaverse, but I'm not a Kool Aid drinker either. I, I think there's something, there's, there's something to the fact that some of our lives are going to be. Let, uh, uh, already and even more will will be in a digital realm 
And as a consequence, certain kinds of things that we own are going to be digital as well. Mm. The question is, will we regret it? That's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Um, uh, right, folks, we end as ever with Desert Island Tweets, the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or thinking in some way. However, Twitter is busy plumping out the nest. That's a little bit where normally we'd be able to show tweets and that sort of thing. So it's a bit of an audio visual experience. Um, so today we're going to actually do something different. Uh, it's called Desert Island Books. OK, so Dan has uh, picked three books, uh, no, four books, sorry, that has changed his thinking in some way. And they are The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, um, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott and Biased by Jennifer Eberhardt. Rule Makers and Rule Breakers by Michelle Gelfond. Um, I pop those up as a tweet on my profile. So if you want to look, just take a look there. Um, click on the yellow icon. You can go through if you want um, or check them out after the show. Um, but Dan, why did you pick uh, these books? Talk about them individually or as a group, whatever you want. Um, well, they're books that changed my mind. Um, so The Righteous Mind is a book by John Haidt about, about, um, about um, how we conceive of morality. Um, we we mistakenly believe that when we make moral decisions um, about, you know, should abortion be legal, um, for instance, or other kinds of things that are moral, that we we reason through the issues and then we, you know, decide uh, when, in fact, the evidence shows that we make instinctive emotional decisions and then use reason and logic to back those up. Uh, so that was powerful. Uh, Biased uh, by Jennifer Everhart, who's at Stanford University, is a book about... Um, just the, the remarkable, how remarkably uh, human beings are shaped by um, um, implicit biases, particularly when it comes to race um, and the, how much that shapes what we do and how we do it. Uh, Bird by Bird is just the best book about writing that I've ever read and best book about living in, in some ways. Um, uh, uh, Michelle Gelfin's book, uh, uh, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, is another really brilliant examination of how the world works she talks about some societies are loose and some societies are tight some societies are very rule oriented and, and and rigid others are less rule oriented and um and more flexible and on everything from our you know public clocks you know you go to brazil you're, you're not going to find a public clock that is accurate you go to Germany, every public clock is going to be accurate, um, you know, and so, um, um, you know, and, and that way of conceiving cultural psychology is um, what I thought was, was, was powerful. So anyway, so so much good stuff out there. So many great people doing really, really interesting work that can help us rethink who we are and who we can become. Yeah, I, I am ashamed and excited to say they're all new to me. So uh, they're going to be purchased and thumbed through somewhere sunny. Fingers crossed very soon, I hope. Um, OK, Dan, that is a wrap on episode eight of season four. My thanks to Dan Pink for exploring regret, motivation and uh, helping people change. I think that's one of the most important skills in this uncertain world that we're you know living through. Um, you can find out more about Dan over at danpink.com. I urge you to listen to his podcast, The Think Pink, uh, The Think the pink casting uh, and get the newsletter. The newsletter is amazing because he does gifts in it and uh, very helpful snackable content as well. Um, Dan, any final words of advice for listeners apart from by the book? Um, you know, um, this, this week, think about telling somebody about a regret that you have, um, tell them what you learned from it and tell them what you're going to do next. And I think you'll find a, you'll have a very rich conversation.
Oh, I like that. I like that. Okay. Um, up next on Mouthwash is Hector Colonas, creator of This Week in Coworking. That's the go-to source for all things co-working. We're going to be talking a lot about that. I'm sure I'll bring up some things that we talked about this uh, evening as well. Um, we're going to be talking if we work still dominant, what people want, new business models, new options, the future of the industry, and a whole lot more. I urge you to tune in. Uh, head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you never miss a minute. Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the team at Big Tent Media. As always, everything mouthwash, even the text alerts, can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. That's mouthwashshow.com. I'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. I am Paul Armstrong. This is Mouthwash. Listen again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.